is but one truly serious philosophical problem, and that is suicide. Judging whether life is or is not worth living amounts to answering the fundamental question of philosophy. Opening lines, <clears throat> Myth of Sisyphus by Camus. Welcome to another edition of Albert Camus Radio, and today we're taking up the myth of Sisyphus, big project to take up. The myth of Sisyphus is another almost book-length philosophical essay by Camus that we want to look at today. It has a very strong reputation historically, critically, philosophically, in terms of literature. It's top rank. And I want to take a look at the text uh, itself for us today. It's published in 1942 in French. So if you take that into the context that we've been moving through here, you've got it coextensive with The Stranger right in the midst of World War II. So take a moment and realize the magnitude of the problems that was facing, that Camus was facing when writing and publishing these texts. So <clears throat> Myth of Sisyphus comes out at the same time as A Stranger, and they're both considered absolute landmark texts. Um, 2,750 copies printed in the first run. It's published in English in 1955, translated by Justin O'Brien. We spoke briefly about on, in the piece on The Stranger. The 55 edition in English contains a very important preface written by Camus. It attacks a number of criticisms of the text and most importantly sharpens his thought as to what precisely is going on in the text. It's not that the text is poorly written or opaque, it's just that it generated a tremendous amount of philosophical interest and it was an opportunity for Camus to crystallize and reinforce and clear up some of the static around some of the areas in the text. The text is dedicated to his friend Pascapia, longtime friend, colleague, helped edit a lot of Camus' work and um, was very close in the construction of this. Here's a picture of the trade copy. Again, sorry, podcasters, you can't see it, but this is the trade copy of The Myth of Sisyphus. You'll find it in an enormous variety of English translations as it's become a very popular text. It's widely used in college classrooms, French, English, um, philosophy, literature classrooms, etc. So you'll find a <clears throat> large number of copies of this, uh, variations of this text, if you start looking around. Camus originally wanted the text published as a three-set volume sort of together. He asked his publisher in Algiers if he would be interested in publishing The Stranger, The Myth of Sisyphus, and Caligula together as a three-part set. And uh, Charlotte in Algiers, the publisher there that did his very first work, thought it was just too big an undertaking for the publishing house to do it during the war. Because remember, Algiers was a colony of France, and then with the takeover of France by the Germans, it became under essentially German rule. So lots of logistical problems that they, the publishing house, a small publishing house with not a lot of resources in Algiers didn't think that they could take up that 
size project at the time. So it went to Gallimard. And I don't know. I did some reading. I didn't see that he pushed for a three-volume set from Gallimard. Maybe he did. Uh, but nevertheless, they came out separately. Uh, it was not included in the three-volume set there. Uh, the structure of the book, it's, it's important to note there are other essays contained in this book. I'm not going to talk about the other essays today. I think the next episode of Albert Camus Radio will take up the uh, shorter essays in the back part of the book. The myth of Sisyphus dominates the book. The entire book in English is 212 pages long, and the myth of Sisyphus runs from page 1 to page 119. So you can see the compact nature of the latter essays in there. Uh, there's an appendix uh, attached to the back of the book also uh, in the introduction, which was added in 1955 to the English edition. The texts that are contained after the myth of Sisyphus are Summer in Algiers, the Minotaur, or uh, Return to Oran is another way that that is titled. And remember, Oran is the city where the plague is set, uh, Helen's Exile, Return to Tapasa, which is one of my favorites. I think we'll do Tapasa and then Return to Tapasa together when we do that one. And The Artist in His Time is the last piece there, which is a nice revealing piece on Camus' psychology at the time. So back to the myth of Sisyphus then proper. The actual Greek myth, so there is an actual myth of Sisyphus that Camus used as the foundation for his work. There are several versions of the myth of Sisyphus that survive. There's been some criticism leveled against Camus that he may not be sticking to it close enough or may not be using the accepted version of the myth of Sisyphus, but that's a hard argument to make, right? Especially against somebody like Camus, who's not a classic scholar, that he's using a you know, not the correct episode. Sisyphus was the king of Ephra, which is also known as Corinth now. So if you have a biblical background, your ears probably perked up at that. It is Corinth from Corinthians. So first and second Corinthians, a letter from Paul, uh, is the same city that we're talking about here. So Corinth has a very long and distinguished history in the ancient and biblical world. Uh, it's an interesting city to visit. It was an interesting city back in the day. It was a port city, so it has all those sort of trappings uh, to it. The myth of Sisyphus, the actual Greek myth then, is cited in the, both the Odyssey and the Iliad from Homer, which makes it one of those premier myths. If you get billing inside Homer, you're an important part of that Greek, classical Greek culture. Uh, that's coming out of the um, the early world there in Greece. So and the myth of Sisyphus does appear as a citation in the Odyssey and the Iliad. And of course, then it gets very high billing again because it's in Plato. Uh, Plato cites the myth of Sisyphus and the character Sisyphus himself in one of my favorite dialogues of Plato, if you're one of my students, when we did general education at McMurray College, I never failed to teach the apology for 15 years to generations and generations of McMurray students where I was blessed by being able to take them through the apology. One of the best end-of-life narratives you'll ever see, and it's kind of fitting that we're talking just briefly about the apology today because that is one of the prime concerns of 
myth of Sisyphus. You heard the opening lines that I started with, this question of suicide, fundamental to Camus. Socrates awaits um, some of the positives that Socrates feels he will see on the other side of his death is that he will meet people like Sisyphus and learn from people like Sisyphus. And I think Camus guides us into what can be learned from Sisyphus. And at one time, the ancient world had a dialogue of Plato's titled Sisyphus. That's been cleared up and been shown to be a false, false dialogue, not written by Plato himself. If you really start digging into Sisyphus, you'll see some of the ancient site Plato's dialogues. Not an authentic dialogue today. Why write it? Uh, Camus had a very, very laid out writing plan, three cycles of writing. He had, if you go through the journals, which we'll be going through the journals on these videos and in this podcast, you'll see that he has a very structured writing program for himself. And uh, this text was designed to sit in conjunction with the stranger, the misunderstanding, the rebel, and Caligula. So those are all pushing one theme, which is the theme of absurdity and the theme of the absurd. And I'm going to spend a few minutes trying to be as crystal clear as possible in the time that I'm allowing these videos to define the absurd as it comes from Camus, because it's just a central building block of Camus' work. It's a better presentation than The Rebel, in my view. Um, I still prefer the plays. I still prefer the misunderstanding to uh, bring forth this notion of the absurdity, but you do need some clarity. So Camus is drifting, and that's not a negative use of that term. Camus is drifting between literature and philosophical argumentation in the myth of Sisyphus. And the, in the misunderstanding, the play, it is straightforward drama, it is straightforward fiction, and you delivered a very powerful philosophical point, but one must dig for that point. This is wonderful writing. This is, from, from my point of view, this is the premium writing style and philosophy that you get in the myth of Sisyphus because you do have fiction and you do have philosophical communication by way of uh, illumination of a very important point uh, in the myth of Sisyphus. So we're really peaking here in terms of Camus' power of the pen. The argument then, um, from Camus is, does the realization of the meaningless and absurdity of life necessarily require suicide? So once a human being comes to this realization that the, the life is absurd and that there's a meaninglessness to it, there's no overarching metaphysic that's guiding this, does that leave us with absurdity? I want to read from page 28 of the text to put some of this in um, Camus' own words. I quote Camus then. The absurd is born of this confrontation between the human need and the unreasonable silence of the world. If you have read The Stranger, you know that this is echoed in the end of The Stranger, this notion of the benign indifference of the universe that Marcel finds himself in. So this quote is a central quote to understanding Camus' work. Uh, 
and says he's defining absurdity for us. And all of these major texts are dealing with absurdity. So I'll read it one more time. I quote Camus. The absurd is born of this confrontation between the human need and the unreasonable silence of the world. I'll go down a sentence to lock this in. Camus writes, the irrational, the human nostalgia, and the absurd that is born of their encounter, these are the three characters in the drama that must necessarily end with all the logic of which an existence is capable. So you get the idea of the absurd blooming in The Stranger with Merceau, and you get pushing things to their logical conclusion, clearly done in Caligula, and the misunderstanding shows the social construct that absurdity will bloom up in uh, when you connect all these together. So it's one of the reasons I absolutely love teaching Camus and I love working in Camus is there is a continuity to his work. It's not episodic. It is connected in very, very important ways. Camus takes up first questions with this. It's a very, very classical and even pre-Socratic Greek style of writing where you need to start at a fundamental base and work up. So the pre-Socratics, those philosophers that preceded Plato, started typically with first philosophy, which meant what is the fundamental question we need to ask? Can we get an answer to that? And then we build upon that. Often they dealt with ontology. They often built on what are the elements of the world? What are the elements of creation? Earth, wind, fire, water, etc. That was typical. And then they would move up from there. Descartes, if you have uh, had some philosophy in the background, in your background, this Cartesian notion of, of pushing everything out of the way and finding a stable foundation that you can begin with. So Descartes asks that question, what is at the bottom of everything? What can I count on? And how can I build up from that? Camus doing that here. He's doing that. Where do we start philosophically? And, and he, of course, he's critical of the history of philosophy that they've had a lot of non-starters and they've been problematic with these large theories, these metaphysics that get in the way. So Camus starts at the very bottom. The most fundamental question for Camus is whether life is worth living and is suicide going to be uh, the option there? Um, this, so the absurdity that pops up then gives us that problem. And it's the interface. So I want to make that really, really clear. The notion of absurdity is not something that is indwelling inside humanity, nor it is something that is indwelling in the natural world. It is the interface between the two. Human beings have these expectations that they place on the world. They're constructed psychologically and they're constructed socially. So there's an internal construction that we all do where we place expectations, a sort of framework on the world, and society builds those things in us too. So personally, you build expectations on the world, and the culture that you've been exposed to puts expectations on the world that you accept. What does that second half mean? Just simply think about Christianity. You have an expectation of how the world is to be driven by your particular denominational 
attributes. So if you're a Presbyterian, if you're a Methodist, if you're a Catholic, if you're a Lutheran, Lutherans have a particular worldview that is constructed biblically, constructed theologically, constructed out of lots and lots of pieces. And that's the lens that Lutherans look at through the world. That's a social construct. And when those expectations come up against the world, there's a problem. They often don't meet. They often don't match. And it's that tension. It's that interface between the two where absurdity uh, strikes up. I want to read one of my favorite quotes all time of Camus. It appears on page 10 of my copy of The Myth of Sisyphus. Um, very bottom of 10 and rolls over to 11. This is this quote that I want to bring forth to show you the notion of this interface, this problem between human expectations and the world that we're thrown into. I quote Camus, at any street corner, the feeling of absurdity can strike any man in the face. Lots of existentialists will work with the notion of a trigger event. Death is often the trigger event. Kierkegaard or Kierkegaard, you want to be proper. Heidegger both work with death as being a trigger event. When death happens, not to yourself, but when death happens to a loved one or somebody that you know, or you could just be reading an obituary, that can trigger this notion of anxiety and this notion of the absurdity of the interface. Camus doesn't necessarily put all, all the weight on a death event. It can happen. Think back to the stranger, right? With the death of the mother, you get that and the death of the Arab, you get that as a, as a typical way that this will proceed, but not necessarily. For Camus, it can strike at any time. That's why he uses that wonderful line about just turning the corner on a street and absurdity can be uh, right there. Um, there's a contradiction that we live in and, and reason has limits. And that's very frustrating for humans, right? We want to frame this world in the way that it's going to be. And we expect that. And when it doesn't happen, we come up against the limits of reason. And that can be very, very difficult uh, for us to uh, uh, arrive at that particular conclusion. Suicide is then rejected because once we understand this, this, this ontology that we live in, this metaphysic almost that we live in, then we understand how we can proceed. But without that understanding, you end up in this really, really frustrating, difficult world of trying to produce immortality projects, for instance. There's a wonderful text, Ernst Becker, The Denial of Death, tracks 100% with what Camus is doing here. This notion of immortality projects. You write a book, like The Myth of Sisyphus, 60, 70 years later, people are still talking about it. People are still studying the text that many years later. That's a form of an immortality project, but it doesn't bring Camus back to life. Having children is another one. People think that having children extends you beyond the grave. It doesn't. They're independent beings, right? They live a life of their own. So the ability to try to live beyond your death is a huge problem for this. And once that's understood, Camus says, you create meaning in this life right here at this time. You understand that where you stand today is a series of choices you've made bringing you up to this point. Where you go in the future will be a series of choices that you make. There are 
some things that are immovable, immobile, right? It's called facticity in, in the philosophical world. Certain facts of the world that are, are that can't be changed, when you were born, where you were born, your genetic code, um, certain um, social things that can't be changed around you that, that make choices for you, but you have an awful lot in your control. And once you realize that and make meaning meaningful choices out of those, you realize that suicide is not the option here. So do not walk away from an engagement with Camus thinking that he is pro-suicide by any stretch of the imagination. He has three examples of the absurd person that are interesting to look at. He has Don Juan as number one, uh, the seducer, very short, passionate um, experiences. The actor uh, who takes on another role and for three hours lives the role that people are living their entire lives. And then the conqueror, um, uh, they engage fully in human history, Camus says. So he has these three examples of the absurd man or the absurd human uh, that Camus will work you through there. Then he has a very nice piece in there about absurd creation. Uh, since explanation of the world is impossible, we run up against limits to fully explain the world. Philosophy has to pull itself back because it can't, Language can't explain the world and our rational capacity cannot explain the world. Art helps a great deal. And he has a wonderful quote uh, from the text. I quote from Camus again. If the world were clear, art would not exist. End quote. So if the world were clear, if the world made perfect sense to us, there would be no art, Camus says, because the role of art then is to help us understand the world fully and we're, we're frustrated with this interface right this this absurd interface that happens art helps in that particular uh, area a great deal finally we get to the myth um you under i think you know the myth right it's it's the greek god that was condemned to push the boulder up the hill and then the boulder falls down and he's condemned for eternity to do this task which essentially looks like it's meaningless uh, Camus has uh, another wonderful quote that, that shows why he's using this Greek myth to talk about the modern world. Page 121, this quote is from on my English version of the text. Camus writes, the workman of today works every day in his life at the same tasks. And this fate is no less absurd, but it is tragic only at the rare moments when it becomes conscious those moments that you're conscious of that, of that, that what you're doing, where you are, those are those moments of lucidity that um, Camus is reaching for. He closes the myth of Sisyphus with a very uplifting uh, narrative. It hasn't been very uplifting to this point because we've primarily talked about suicide and we've primarily talked about um, the meaningless of life and this interface of um, abstraction that that causes this notion of absurdity uh, to be raised up. He has these wonderful quotes um, about Sisyphus. So he's talking about when Sisyphus reaches the peak and the task has been done only to be started again. But at that moment when the task is done, Camus writes, it is during that return, that pause, that Sisyphus interests me. A few more lines down. At each of those moments when he leaves the heights and gradually sinks towards the lair of the gods, 
He is superior to his faith. He is stronger than his rock. One must imagine Sisyphus happy. He outlines some wrong moves that one can take, people that he respects greatly that have done parallel work to him with illuminating this aspect of absurdity. Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard, Heidegger, Hegel, Jaspers, they're chasing abstractions, Kimmel argues. So they, they did great descriptive work, but when they move to the prescriptive work, prescribing what one should do about this, they fail greatly. Heidegger, Jaspers, Hegel run to these abstractions, notions of spirit, uh, etc., just to pick on Hegel. And Kierkegaard, of course, moves towards um, Christianity. So in the concept of anxiety, for, for example, is the premium parallel here with Camus, you get Kierkegaard moving to Christ. It is the Christ is the only answer for anxiety, which very, very much parallels Camus' notion uh, of the absurd. On page three of my text, um, uh, Camus has a, a humorous quote, so we don't often see a lot of humor in Camus, but we do. So when we're talking about Christian moves, Christian theologians that recognize absurdity and then move to Christ as the answer for it. Camus says, quote, I have never seen anyone die for the ontological argument. So um, he's framing that already in the early part of the text. Camus is not an atheist, so don't walk away from this text either, making the case that it's clearly anti he's clearly anti-christian and he's clearly um uh, one of those hardcore atheists that attacks that um here I'll, I'll quote from page 51 which can help understand camus um position on this idea of, of christians and christian answers to this i don't know whether this world has a meaning that transcends it and that's even beyond christianity right that's hegel that can be kant but I do know, but I know that I do not know that meaning and that is, it is impossible for me just to know it. I do not know whether this world has a meaning that transcends it, but I know that I do not know that meaning and that it is impossible for me just now to know it. He doesn't know, so he stops there. Again, the limits of reason are what are very, very important here, not making that next move that you're not authorized to make logically, critically, philosophically to some sort of um, rescue from the situation. It's up to you to rescue yourself. So very, very fine text, the, the myth of Sisyphus. I'll talk about the shorter essays next time. Take it up, read it, and enjoy it. Thank you.